This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Great to have you along for this edition of Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino. Whatever age or stage you may be at as a parent, there's always something new to discover. Our guest today is on that very journey while overseeing one of the most important portfolios in the province of Ontario. Tatum Wilson has spent more than 20 years working in social services and health in advocacy, government and academic health science settings. Many of his roles have focused on children and youth. Tatum Wilson is the current CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario. He's also a father of a toddler, and he joins us today from Toronto. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really interesting, Tatum, that a cornerstone of your entire career journey really has been focused on children and youth with a specific lens on social justice and equity. Could you take us through how that became such a theme along your career path? Way from the beginning, I'm the child of, of public servants. My my dad worked for the WSIB for his whole career, and my mom was a is a now a retired principal. And so, um, kind of public service and and being engaged in the world and trying to sort of make things better has always been part of uh, my DNA. And then, um, you know, after university, I've I've always known that I had wanted to go. I have a degree in political science and wanted to work in government and uh, in policy specifically. And so it has just gone from there. And uh, I started working in the Ministry of Health was my first job in the in the Ontario Public Service. And just from there, it sort of builds. Right. You sort of see you get a sense of the challenges as well as the opportunities. And just with each sort of. Uh, passing job that I was able to uh, move into in my career, it has always had this sort of bent and focus on on social policy and social justice, and then kind of by accident has ended up also having this focus on children and youth. So um, it's just, it's it's always been an, an interest of mine. Uh, I also think, you know, candidly as a, as a person of color and um, as someone from the LGBT community, you know, in my own life, there's been elements of social change and and social progress that have been personally important and it has both informed the the kind of work that I do and also the the understanding that I have of it uh as well as some of the challenges and it's just been a, a continuum through the through my career and, and in its in its development and I've been very fortunate as well to be able to have the opportunity to to tie these things together my own interests and my work um and it just you know, not that I try to get out of it, but I, I just seem to keep landing in these places that involve this kind of work. So um, it's a bit personal and then it's a bit sort of my interests, and then now my experience. So now in the spring of 2022, you were named the CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario. Why were you interested in this position? And at this particular time that we find ourselves in with everything going on around youth and mental health in the world today? Well, I mean, you you just said it right there. There there is no question that, um, you know, for, for a long time, obviously, uh, children and youth mental health is, is an important issue. Um, one that for many years, whether it's because of stigma or government funding, hasn't frankly gotten the kind of attention that it warrants. And the while the stigma sort of discussion has been changing a lot over, I'd say, the last 10 to 15 years, um, the real the the pandemic really sort of shone a light, unfortunately, on the realities and the experiences of children and youth through the pandemic, 
who in many ways we could say from a health perspective, but also from a social perspective and specifically in mental health have borne the brunt of the pandemic, whether it's school closures, isolation, just confusion and fear, however you want to call it, that children have have um, faced pretty unique challenges over the last the last couple of years. And so when this opportunity presented itself as uh, to, to become the CEO of CMHO, it really just felt like for me personally, it was the culmination of a lot of the work that I've done. I've like, like we've talked about, I've worked in health policy. I, I worked on the poverty reduction strategy. I've worked in child welfare. Um, and, you know, these things, my, my observations, having worked in these sectors a lot of the time is these are not distinct children, right? You know, children in child welfare or children living in families on low income or children with mental health challenges that many of these kids, if you were to draw out a Venn diagram, you know, the, the part that overlaps is, is um, would be quite, would be the largest part of that Venn diagram. So it just felt like in many ways it was, it was a way to build on a lot of the experiences that I've had, but also to bring to it some of my own personal interests. I, uh, I am a new dad. Um, I have a, a three-year-old son, as we've said, and that also added to it a, a personal interest in terms of wanting to improve the system. Should he ever, should he ever need it, need to take advantage of it? Um, I also just, in my own personal background, some of what has driven me to this work is uh, my my father had a brother and a sister um, who have both since passed away, but who had schizophrenia, and their lives were very, very challenging, you know, street involved, um, at times homelessness and, and a number of challenges in, in that regard. And I, I couldn't help but notice and in my conversations with my family that had they had access to the kind of services that um, we're trying to advocate for now at CMHO, their lives would have been significantly better. And notwithstanding the fact that closer to the end of their lives, they, they did through luck or through planning, they did get access to caseworkers who really helped them improve their lives and, and allow them to thrive in a, in a way that was meaningful for them. But I always couldn't help but think again, hearing stories that my dad would tell that, you know, both of these things were their onset were when they were in their youth. And should we have, sh should they have had access to the kind of services that we're advocating for here, um, their lives would have been much better. And so for me personally, that is a little bit from a personal perspective, what has driven some of my passion about this. And um, and the time is right, right, the, to, to kind of make these kind of changes. And you know, I can say for sure that to a person, when I would tell them that I was moving into this job, everyone has sort of disclosed, oh, well, you know, I'm actually worried about my son or I'm worried about my daughter or we've seen the challenges. And so it really feels like it is it is a very timely kind of thing for a lot of a lot of parents of, of kids of all ages and also just those who generally care about about kids and their well-being. So uh, it just felt like the right time. And 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 there's a lot of work to do, unfortunately. There is certainly timely, but also daunting. And yeah. I wonder, um, Tatum, in a long list of challenges, as you mentioned, how do you go about prioritizing what needs attention first as the numbers continue to increase? It is one of those where to begin kind of uh, questions. I, I would say, you know, if, even if we just start with the numbers. So pre-pandemic, uh, CMHO did a uh, uh, a survey of our members. We represent about 85 of Ontario's uh, publicly funded child and youth mental health agencies. And together they represent about 95% of the funding that goes out for child and youth mental health. So we've got quite a scope of the province. And in a survey done for wait times and access, uh, pre-pandemic in the worst case scenario was a 2.5 year wait. So we just sit with that for a second, two and a half years to wait to get access to services. And 
often that's even in the case, particularly for those who are in the most need of intensive treatment. So that's a worst case scenario. The average across the province is about a nine month wait. So again, we speaking back to why I do this job, the idea of having to wait nine months, let alone two and a half years for our son to get access to care is just incredibly traumatizing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of that, the, the wait list in terms of numbers was 28,000 kids on the wait list. So uh, if I was to have to pick a priority, access is the biggest priority, I would say right now, because kids are waiting far too long. And this is not a condition such that you know you have a diagnosis and then if you you just wait to get service and when you get it then you fix it these things they get worse they become more acute they have impact on families they have impact on on schools and you know on school success so the longer you have to wait the 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 harder it is so from an access from a prioritizing perspective i would say that access is the is the number one priority for us and you know we can get into all the different ways in which you might improve that but um that is the biggest challenge and then it's coupled with you know, again, things that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So, you know, we know that demand has increased. There are more kids who are facing challenges from a mental health perspective. In terms of specifics, we know that eating disorders have gone up during the pandemic. We know that the number of kids with anxiety and depression have gone up. And again, those numbers were pre-pandemic, 28,000 kids waiting on a wait list up to possibly two and a half years. And with demand increasing during the pandemic, um, those those have just have just gotten worse. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Tatum Wilson, CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario. Now, Tatum, for moms, dads, guardians, parents watching or listening to this interview, hearing those statistics, already potentially feeling helpless because they may have a child who needs mental health care, what advice would you give them as a starting point to have their child assessed by the appropriate expert yeah well i mean i i think that ideally if, if people have a primary care provider certainly have no hesitation to go and engage with that provider many of them will provide and as part of their practice if they're on a team of interdisciplinary providers which means you know not just physicians but nurse practitioners or social workers or other people who provide different types of care within that within that model they may have access to early interventions or brief interventions, which could, you know, address the problem early on. And what I would say is um, just at the outset, don't hesitate, right? Like if you're sensing something about your child, then just ask about it. There's no harm in asking. A, a family doctor might be able to identify a couple of early things or just different changes in whether it's about your parenting or about the settings that you're in or supports that they can provide, they could, they could do that. Um, so certainly that's one piece of advice is to ask early and um, and have no sort of fears about doing that. The family doctors, for example, are, are open to those kind of questions. Uh, should you get to the point where you know that it's a more acute issue that you need to deal with? Um, you know, there are there are locally throughout the province, we have child and youth mental health agencies who are able to provide care. Many of them are trying to do work either as an individual agency or with groups of agencies where they will provide kind of a, a one number that you can call and do like a quick assessment and they can give you a sense of where you might have points of access for care, um, the type of provider that you're looking for, if a child and youth mental health agency is the right one for you. And with those um, kind of one call, one door, you know, metaphorically speaking, uh, ways of accessing care, um, you you can hopefully at least get in to have an early, uh, an early session and, and identify what some of the challenges are. 
We do also um, at CMHO on our on our website, childrensmentalhealthontario.org, there is a list of our providers and you can enter into that, the kind of challenges that you're seeing, what you might think you might need, and it will provide the name of a provider who might be able to help you out. And then you can you can get access in that way. I would say, unfortunately, the reality is, is, is some of our members are not able to provide immediate care because of some of the access challenges that we were already talking about earlier. And so I would always recommend, you know, should you find yourself in a situation where it is feeling very acute, or certainly if anyone is at risk, then you can go to an, to the to the hospital. You can go to the emergency room. And you know, a lot of people I find are unsure. Is that appropriate? Now, from a from a quality perspective, from an outcome perspective, from a cost perspective, the emergency room is not actually the right place to go. But it is a place to go if you are in urgent need of, of that type of care and that type of intervention. And again, I wanna make sure it's clear, I don't say it's not the right place to go because you shouldn't be doing that, but from an effectiveness perspective, it, it costs much more. Hospital care is more expensive than community-based care. You will end up in sort of a system that is already sort of overstressed and as we're hearing now in the news, the children's health sector. Um, so so again, from a, from a principled perspective, it's not the right place to go, but certainly if a parent is feeling like they're in need, Absolutely, it is It is appropriate to go and seek out that care there. Time for a quick break here on 105.9 The Region. When we come back on Where Parents Talk, a bold vision, a ticking clock, and next steps. More with our guest, Tatum Wilson, CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario, when we come back. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We are talking about addressing children's mental health services in Ontario with our guest Tatum Wilson, CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario. Now, Tatum, the CMHO website says it wants to create, quote, a place where kids and young people with mental health needs thrive. Certainly a bold statement and a huge vision. What would you say is foundational to making this happen? I I think it really is about setting up a system that treats kids. We use sort of a tagline, like at the right time and in the right place and with the right care. And so what we need to have is a system of care that allows children to access the right kind of care that they need and at the right time. So in some cases, it is just your family doctor and they have the knowledge to be able to address the issue and at the, at the outset, which then really, I mean, I always think about mental, mental health and mental illnesses sort of getting there when you can, right? So if it's, a, if it's a mild to moderate case, a couple of sessions with your family doctor or a social worker might be all that you need and then you can move on and thrive. Inevitably, there will always be kids who have more complex or more complicated challenges, and they need to have access to the right kind of care as well. And that can be still through the community. We do provide intensive treatment. Our members also provide, in some cases, even live-in treatment. If a child is not able to get the kind of care and support that they need in their family, like in their home, they can get out-of-home treatment, which is where you are in in a residential setting where you can get that kind of care. And then, again, in the most acute perspectives, they might need to go to the hospital. But again, to the to the original question about what would allow them to thrive is having a system of care that is able to support kids at whatever point they are at and meet them where their needs are. Um, you know, one of the things that we've heard a lot about during the pandemic is, is again, through schools and the impact of school closures. And there's a very valid and real um, perspective that 
providing care for kids or at least access to interventions in the school system is a logical place to do it. I could not agree more and I would welcome any kind of investments in mental health and particularly child and youth mental health anywhere. However, again, when you're talking about the question of how can kids thrive, the system needs to be responsive to the kind of care that kids need. And right now the government has rightfully made investments into child and youth mental health and they've made some significant investments into the providing these access to, to mental health workers in the school system, which again, makes perfect sense. However, when the system is of care is not set up to properly help kids thrive, what ends up happening now is a bit of a perverse incentive and that's in a couple of ways. One is school-based mental health workers are there to often identify the needs of a child. So you might then get a diagnosis, you can do an assessment there. They are not properly set up to deal with the intensive treatment that some of those kids will inevitably need. And so one of the, you know, the, the double-edged sword of, of making more assessments available is you also then understand what the need is. And unfortunately, some of those kids who might get an assessment and then a diagnosis of some more um, intense or severe need in the school system, if they get that identification there, they end up going to the back of the list to get care in the community sector, right? Because they need the care. It's not something that can be provided, not because people aren't trying, but just because it's not the setup. They can't get the care that they need in the school system. So then they end up needing to go into the community. And when they go on that long wait list, which we've already talked about in the community, they end up waiting for, for care longer there. So again, my point is we welcome all investments into the, the child and youth mental health sector, but it's got to be done in a way that, um, that elicits the right sort of type of behaviors and outcomes and actions that need to be taken. So a balance of investing in the school system where assessment and even dealing with mild to moderate cases can be done, but it needs to be complemented by supports in the community so that those kids whose needs aren't necessarily met in the, um, in the school system have a place to go that is the next step that is not just, well, can't get care in the community. And again, as I've already talked about, then you end up having to go in the hospital. And the, arguably the whole point is that this is not good economically either, because if kids can get care in the community, it is a lower cost treatment option than if they have to go to the hospital. So again, you wanna set up a system of care that meets the needs of the kids where they're at. One of the other challenges, and again, I, this is all speaking to the focus on the question of how do kids thrive and how to make sure that the system is set up for them is mental health workers often in the school system are paid, there's a big wage disparity between the, the, the wages in the school system versus in the community. And so one of the, you had talked about one of the, what are the challenges that we're facing? And we are facing, we hear about this health human resources challenge, HHR, across the system as a result of the pandemic, as a result of historical underfunding. And there are specific HHR challenges within community-based mental health. One of them being that when you fund for positions in the school system that are paid better than those who work in the community sector, we are facing a significant loss of staff into the school system right now. So again, my point being, you need to look at the whole system of care and individual investments. They make sense in the moment, but they need to be done in a thoughtful and comprehensive way such that it doesn't create the kind of incentives that we don't wanna see, right? We need people staffed in the community sector. We need people staffed in the education sector, but you can't have a system set up where you're drawing one from the other, leaving longer wait lists and larger numbers of vacancies on the front line in the community sector. So again, the, the idea is funding and creating a system that provides a whole system of care that is funded appropriately and in the right places to drive the right kind of interventions that you can have for kids. Lots to unpack in what you just described there. Let's start with the sense of urgency piece. 
You talked about, in many cases, families who hear a clock ticking and they may not get the help they need with their primary care provider. So what can you share about timing? How long is it going to potentially take to make the vision a reality, the one that's described on your website, and certainly the one that you've outlined for us? I mean, certainly it's not overnight, right? Like the, these systems are, there's a lot of moving people or moving pieces. There are a lot of, it's, it's people that are involved. We're not, we're not making machines or cars or something like that. And so uh, it takes time and thoughtfulness and planning. That being said, I mean, leading up to the election and even currently now, our advocacy is is focused on um, appropriate investments into the into the system. And what we do know is what we've articulated by working with our members is that if we invest, I mean, our our overall ask is about 140 million dollars um, annualized money put into the system over over the course of a number of years. Um, with a goal of bringing our wait list down to a maximum of 30 days, which is about the, the appropriate time. I mean, I know that to a parent, and I can speak to this personally, any day seems like too long, many day more than one day. But 30 days is kind of a clinically accepted window in which if you can get access to care, then you can get to the, the challenge earlier. And in terms of timing, I mean, I, I think, you know, with those investments, we could ramp up fairly quickly. It would involve recruitment. We know that HHR is a challenge, like I've said, so it would involve the steps of recruiting more staff to do it. Um, it would involve some system changes such that we are making sure that we have sort of the appropriate regional distribution of, of availability of services. You know, Toronto is a very different experience than, than being in the North in terms of access, whether it's distance to travel, number of staff and workers, expertise, local community challenges that might be causing, you know, some of these mental health issues for the children. But um, so that would be something that we need to work on is the appropriate uh, distribution of, of these resources. But, you know, if, if I could wave a magic wand and get all the money that we need right away, I, I would say, you know, I don't want to put a clock on it, but it wouldn't be too long before we could have in place a system that was much more able to meet the needs of kids. And again, the other thing that I, you know, I've talked about the education system, you know, there's a great deal of interest. I mean, everyone has the kids' interests in mind, right? So if we could work on partnerships, for example, between school boards and our community mental health providers, where there is a care pathway that is 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 known for, you know, you know, always from the perspective of a child and their family, that if you know a, a child gets in a diagnosis, that there is a warm handoff to the community sector, that they can then provide the kind of care that they need in there. So these are all the kinds of organizational and structural kind of changes that we would need. But I think if we got the money that we needed to do it and got the funding and the investment, it, it wouldn't be too long before we could put in place a system that would at least significantly decrease the amount of wait time that we have. And then we can focus on setting up the system in a way, whether it's through integration or more collaboration, that would allow kids to thrive as we want to see. An integral part of having this conversation about youth mental health is really understanding root causes and how we got here. Youth mental health is widely described as a global epidemic exacerbated by the global pandemic. When we look at key contributors to youth mental health challenges, Tatum, according to research in this province, what can you tell us about that? I would say, first of all, it is mental health challenges or mental illnesses has been with us always. Uh, and there are, I think, one of the things that have led to our current situation is actually the result of a good thing. We are breaking down stigma around talking about mental health and mental illness. And I can even personally think about, you know, kids that 
classmates of mine that I had in elementary school that now when I look back, I'm like, oh, you you might have actually just had like a some type of mental health issue that you, that could have been supported. But because of context and the time that we were in, people didn't talk about it. So there is an increased awareness, which is 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 also, you know, is not even a change in numbers or a change of of circumstances that are causing more mental health issues or whatever. There is just an awareness of it that's happening. Um, I do think that generally there is, um, there are, you know, the, just the stuff of life, right? We you know the the, the um, economic stress on families, family separation, all those kind of things. I mean, those are things that cause or or are parts of the cause for children's children's challenges with their with their own mental health. And as society and circumstances change, I think those are also adding to the numbers that we have. But I would say that really the pandemic has has is really where where we are at the point that we are at in terms of of numbers where there's been just this huge increase in things like isolation separation from friends and family um you know just stress and i and i, I think the evidence would say that the pandemic has had a significant impact on it and i don't know that there are specific causes you know outside of the pandemic i i don't know that there are specific causes that are causing an increase in the number of kids dealing with mental health challenges it is really more I would say just an awareness of it and a recognition that these are some things that you can have an intervention on early and that if you seek out the care, if you're struggling to understand something that's going on with your child, that is why people are more comfortable seeking out the care, which is adding to the to the numbers as we as we perceive them. So on that note, Tatum, what would you say gives you hope? You know, you talked so eloquently about sort of the multiple uh, perspectives you have on this topic. And, and the challenges ahead, as daunting as they may be, because we are talking about a situation that can last across the lifetime, if mm -hmm. not handled, uh, you know, in a timely manner. So as you look at your role, as you look and take sort of a, a sky high view of things to come, what gives you hope? It's a great question. I have to remind myself to be optimistic uh, as much as possible. What gives me hope is that the, the changing nature of the conversation, right? So I, I think about you know, it, through my work, right? I've been working in the health and social policy area for about 20 years now. And, you know, 15 years ago, it was not the same conversation about, about mental health and the ways in which it has changed and the, the comfort that people have, whether it's publicly on social media or personally with their families and friends, the way that people are, are able and willing to talk about it gives me a lot of hope in terms of, um, you know, recognizing that it is becoming not a sort of deep, dark, hidden secret, but it is something that we can talk about. Now, we talked briefly about the fact that you're a relatively young dad with a three-year-old son, and I wonder how much has becoming a dad yourself impacted the lens through which you see all the work that you're doing in this specific field in your professional life? It's nice that you called me a young dad. I don't know that I'm a young dad, <laughs> but we have a young son. Um, but it, uh, you know, what, what it really did is it crystallized for me the importance of this, of this issue. It's also validated for me the idea, you know, many of the policy files that I've worked on, I've made an effort to do, uh, use the um, the philosophy of nothing about us without us, which is sort of do not make decisions, whether it's about poverty reduction or child welfare or mental health, without engaging those people who are engaged in those systems. And so now I can absolutely see the ways in which, you know, in my past, I might have, again, had this sort of intellectual understanding of the changes that need to happen. But now as a parent, I can understand 
oh, you know, the, the views of families are not always incorporated into how decisions are made. Being a parent and the lived experience of families that are going through this is so important. And for me, that's been one of the big eye openers. Tatum Wilson, CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's been really a real pleasure and thanks for your attention to the issue. Remember, you can catch the full video interview of today's conversation on whereparentstalk.com, as well as resources and more information. That is our show for this week. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for being with us. Hope you'll join us next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.